Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello. Hey, 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 hey. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I hope you're doing okay. Thank you for listening. I have a great show for you today. Courtney Zoffness is my guest. She has a new collection of memoirs out from McSweeney's. It is called Spilt Milk, and it is the official May pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. The NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. You get a book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview the authors on this program. For more on that, visit thenervousbreakdown.com. So I really enjoyed Spilt Milk. It is an intimate collection of uh, deeply personal essays, memoirs, whatever you want to call it. It's about inheritance. It's about what we get as human beings from our parents, our ancestors, our culture, whatever spiritual tradition we're born into. All of that stuff. And it speaks to the way that we live now, in the way of great nonfiction in particular. Great books, but I, you know, this book is nonfiction, and I recognized myself in it a lot, and it taught me a lot. Courtney's Offness won the 2018 uh, Sunday Times Short Story Award. That's the most valuable international prize for short fiction. So she's a fiction writer as well and a gifted one. She directs the creative writing program at Drew University and is also a faculty member at Writing Workshops in Greece. So that sounds nice. Now that, you know, hopefully things are normalizing, you can go to Greece and take a writing workshop with Courtney's offness. Eventually. So, really enjoyed this book and enjoyed this conversation. Excited to share, uh, share it with you now. My dog, I don't know if you can hear that, but she's growling. I don't know what's going on, but I feel like we should just get to the conversation. Did you hear that? <laughs> anyway. This is my conversation with Courtney Zoffness. Her new collection of memoirs, once again, is called Spilt Milk. It is the official May pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Here she is, folks. This is Courtney Zoffness. Memoirs on the cover, I think, just to denote that these are personal essays. Right. 
very personal. And I think that a lot of them I marvel at because of the specificity of detail, particularly around things uh, where there's a lot of time between now and then. And I'm a person with a spotty memory, like spotty at oh, best. Me too, actually. Yeah. Okay. But it seems like when I read you, I'm like, my God, she remembers everything. Like the like, do you have like a, a, like a verite documentary film of your bat mitzvah? Like, what are you going off yes. of? <laughs> do you? No, I literally watched the VHS tape multiple times, which I don't recommend. Okay. Uh, and I got, I mean, it was amazing source material. So for that one in particular, I mean, I certainly did not recall like where I sat, what facial expression I made when, you know, I felt betrayed all of that. Yeah. I watched the video and I got to watch sort of things that I wasn't paying attention to when I was having the party, like side conversations, like hustling among my friends and all of that. Okay. So did you, uh, did you have the VHS tape digitized or did you like scrounge up a VHS player? I'd have a VCR. You have a VCR. I do. Do you remember those? Yes. I remember like setting the, my sister used to set the timer to like record days of our lives every day at our house. Yeah. Like I, I have a VCR and it, and it worked. And it worked. Why do you still have a VCR for these purposes? Uh, because I'm a hoarder. I don't know. I don't know. It just, it was attached to our old sound system, whatever. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes me feel better about my brain because I was... Yeah, yeah. No, you should. I, I don't remember anything. In fact, my friend in college used to call me, where's my... Because that's all. Where are my keys? Where's my wallet? Where's my... Right. That was like before I left, I would shout that about everything. Were you a child diarist? Did you keep... Yes. Okay. So you have that as source material too. Yeah. Also, great, great resource. Yes. Yes. Especially uh, about like the psychological, real... like the, the squabbles with friends. I can imagine that stuff gets like a lot of attention in a diary when you're a teenager. Exclusively. <laughs> and also what's fascinating is the ways in which I, I don't know who I thought would be reading these except my future self, but I could see the way I was like making shit up too. I have one exclamation at the top of like a fourth grade diary that's like, I'm such a busy person, <laughs> you know, like uh, my social calendar is so full. And I knew this not to be true, but, you know, it was clear. It was important to me to present who I wished I was. That's so that of, was also useful intel. That's kind of endearing. Maybe. Like it's forgivable. I think it's more forgivable in a child. Let's put it that way. Like if you're <laughs> right. like a full, like a right. full adult and you're lying about your social that's calendar, so it takes on a different, <laughs> a different veneer. Um, with that exclamation, I am such a busy person. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So I want to also ask you, um, like, I guess there are a lot of different through lines in this, uh, collection, but one of the ones that struck me personally as a parent and as a dad and, uh, someone with an anxious kid is, like, I feel the sense of responsibility and concern that maybe like I'm anxious and I'm somehow transferring it to her. I guess my wife might be anxious too. And we're transferring this to our child. You write a, a beautiful essay that I think leads the collection. If I'm, does, yeah. my memory serves me right. And it's, 
it's about uh, your, one of your sons. You have two sons, and one of them is very anxious. Um, and you, as a child and as a person, have struggled or dealt with anxiety. I think we all have anxiety. I never know how to right. characterize these things. Like, No, I think it's – I mean, it's like depression. Everybody feels sad, but then there's a tipping point. Okay. Right? Well, so well, you can be anxious, but then you can have maybe an anxiety disorder. I I do think there's – a spectrum, maybe. Yeah, I was thinking about it this morning because I went for a hike, like first thing, which is like I have to exercise to just like to shake feel less it. anxious. Everything to feel less depressed, to feel less anxious. Like it's just how I shake off the cobwebs. Like it's part of my system. It always has been, mm -hmm. but I don't go to therapy or uh, take any meds or anything. But I was debating with myself this morning. I, maybe it was because I was, you know, knew I was going to be talking with you. But I was just thinking about this sort of stuff in general and about uh, what I would be like if I didn't do the exercise. And right. what is the tipping point for me? And, like, how do I even characterize my particular form of malaise? Like, is it something that a doctor would categorize in, like, a or diagnose, you know, in a clinical way, or would it just be like, oh yeah, you're just a person and it's wise That's to right. do some exercise to like shake it off. This is how we mostly are. That sounds like a very, you know, appropriate and healthy coping <laughs> mechanism or whatever, or response to your, how you feel. I'm trying. Not that I'm, you know, a clinician, but I think you would know if you had tipped maybe. Okay. Yeah. I guess I'm wondering when that might happen or if it'll ever happen. But when it comes to, um, you know, the anxiety that you grew up with and that you sort of see in your son, like, I guess like it, it just speaks to me at the level of feelings of responsibility around what we transmit, not only through our behavior as parents, um, but also through our DNA. Um, yeah, exactly. And trying to sort of reckon with that guilt and, um, I guess the, the essay in question, it didn't necessarily tie it up in a bow and none of them do, you know, which I think is uh, true to life, but it made me grapple with that a little bit. I guess it's just unavoidable. You know, you're going to be in a situation as a parent where certain aspects of life and maybe certain aspects of yourself find their way into your children, <laughs> um, even though you wish they wouldn't. Yes, I think all of that is true. Uh, and I think it's really tempting to try to tease them apart. Like, what in them am I responsible for and in what ways? And even before I had my son, when I was first pregnant, um, I knew myself to be, you know, more more higher on the anxious spectrum. Um, but when I was a kid, it was, you know, even worse, or I just didn't have management tools. Uh, and was doing all these things to try to keep a calm uterine environment. Like, I started that early hoping, thinking, falsely believing that I had some control here. Uh, and it still does feel like even if we can have a conversation about nothing we do really matter. I mean, we will still, maybe I shouldn't speak for you, but I will still at every turn be, you know, self-questioning and like calculating, is this the right response in this moment? And is this behavior uh, appropriate? Even if, you know, in my existential moments, I think, does it matter? You I, know? I, you know where I've been landing lately, or maybe for a while, is that this idea that like less is more for me as a parent, 
but obviously like less I, parenting less parenting <laughs> less talking less talking especially uh i don't you know you have to kind of balance that you mean against. like moralizing kind of well sure that that especially um yeah i mean obviously talk, talk to your children I, I, you know i, I want to say you, you have to balance that against being a caring and attentive parent you want to give your kids um quality attention but like projecting myself onto them thinking they should be a certain way like having some like this like I think there's some truth to this idea that like your kids aren't yours, you know, you bring them into the world, but like, they're not your possession. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's kind of healthy yeah. to have that relationship to the idea of parenthood, but I guess it's more of just like, that's a, hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the struggle. And then it's also the idea of, uh, just being like kind of walking the walk and leading by example rather than talking at them and giving them space to sort sort things out on their own. I think the pandemic has made all of this much harder. Yes. Truly. Because they're you say you you know, your children aren't yours, but I'm all they see, right? It's like uh yeah, I mean I just feel like there are ways in which like all of this, you know, is sidelined when they're just quarantining with you and socializing less and having fewer models. And I don't know, their exposure just seems really narrow right now. Yeah, no, I've noticed it a lot lately. Like my son, uh, my youngest has special needs and um, we have to be extra careful with him because he's in a higher risk category because of his diagnoses. And um, so he's been really just with us and the family and he... And you're ignoring him because of your no talk policy. <laughs> I haven't talked to him in months, but I see him all the time. <laughs> and uh, he uh, he um, he perseverates a little bit sometimes. Like he'll get fixated on certain things. Like he's very into Star Wars, but um, lately he has been perseverating on "I love you, Dad," <laughs> which is really endearing. And like every time I enter a room, he's just like "Love you, Dad," and like I'm in the bath I'm in the bathroom, and he'll be like. Love you, Dad. I'm like, okay, buddy. You know, like constantly. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, it could be way worse. It could be way I worse, mean, and are, it will be. But I mean, so many others. It's a great phase in a lot of ways. But what it has been making me think of, with respect to the pandemic, is like, my God, like uh, we're all he's got. He's so bored with us, and but he's also like, we're his he's people. In love with you too. He's in love yeah. with me. I'll take it. Um, I am eager. Like, I don't know if you saw the news though. Yesterday, I think just yesterday, they said that they're going to be able to roll out hopefully the vaccine for kids in the fall. That. So I'm just, I'm yes. waiting for that. Mm -hmm. Two plus in late fall. That's what I heard. Okay. So good. So are your, may I ask, are your kids back in school? Like, are you, are you guys back in? So they are in a co-op with other families who are learning remotely. So they're still plugged into their school doing it all on zoom and doing this with other families is that a but it's also called a bubble or is, a pod or a pod that's I right like co-op makes me feel better about it <laughs> so i call it co-op yeah, i know there's some sensitivity um, around these like terminology but, but yeah i mean i'm in a two-bedroom apartment my husband works on top of our dresser standing up and every day maybe i shouldn't say this on the podcast too late already in <laughs> i have to knock on the door and then he like 
discreetly has to open the top drawer and grab my underwear and like throw it out the while he's like meeting with his boss. Like there's just nothing normal about this situation. And I mean, if they were here too, like there's nowhere to put them. I mean, there are places we can find places. Um, in fact, my six-year-old is amazing at hide and seek, and I'm always amazed that he finds places to disappear, like new places. <laughs> so there are places. Uh, but this has, I think, saved us all, this yeah. option. Um, and I felt very strongly that they stay engaged with their public schools, um, which I really love. So that's what they're doing. Well, no, and I think, uh, you know, you're making me think of how much more difficult it has to be to be in a place like Brooklyn or New York, um, in the, like an apartment building during all this and where the weather turns, it's like, man. I think lack of outdoor space for folks who don't, you know, sort of have that has been a major challenge because I mean, early in the pandemic parks were closed, right? It's just like, where am I putting these human beings? It's like, stick your face out the window, but only breathe twice and then quickly close it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah, I remember there. That was like last spring, like spring of 2020, when it, you know, the first kind of peak or the first wave. And when I think the level of information that we had about how this virus behaves, you know, was limited. Right. And we everyone would, was panicked. Yeah. We would just load the kids into the car and drive around. Like that was our, like our weekend activity. And I remember there were several field trips where, like there were people just like out. You could see other families like out, like just searching for open space where nobody else it's apocalyptic. was. Apocalyptic. It's crazy. Yes. I know. Have you been writing about it at all? I feel like you would be good at writing about this. So a little bit. Um, my kids, both my sons had the virus. So I wrote about that. <laughs> um, I laughed. It wasn't funny. It was very tricky. Um, I wrote about it for the New York Times actually and um, got a lot of, this ties perfectly, ties in perfectly with where our conversation started. I got a lot of hate mail because um, I wrote about being an anxious person and instilling fear in my children about this thing that nobody wanted to get. And part of ensuring their safety, our safety, the community's safety was making clear the risk, right? And how do you do that for a child? It's like, don't touch that, wear a mask, pull it over your nose, stand further back. Um, so I tried not to do that in a way that, you know, conveyed alarm, but maybe I don't roll as calmly as some others, but I, I did, you know, I don't think I was cuckoo about it, but nonetheless, uh, and then my six-year-old got it from his teacher. So she, um, you know, got a fever, quarantined. He was asymptomatic, my son, but tested positive. Uh, and, you know, it occurred to me when I watched how he reacted that I had successfully, for better or worse, maybe for worse, like made him really afraid of this thing because he was so upset that he had, it's like he spent a year trying to avoid this thing and then it arrives, you know, right in his little body and no one else's. And he's a really sensitive kid. So, you is know, this, and then is this the warrior? Other... Is this the warrior kid? No, it's, it's not the, even the warrior. It's not even the warrior. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, oh, listen, I think, I think most kids picked up on it and feel some fear around COVID. I don't think that's unique to your household. I think some, yeah, I agree with you. And I think adults do too. And that is how we stay safe. 
it's like we're taking these precautions because we don't want to get this thing. Why don't we want to get this thing? We're afraid of this thing. Like, I feel like it's all part of the same stew. So anyway, I got a lot of hate mail about people saying that, you know, you're destroying your children, you're making them anxious messes, and they don't need to be afraid and blah, blah, blah. Um, but yes, I did. I did write about it from that angle. Um, and, and it also included a bit about the challenges of our situation and how do you quarantine a child which I tried to do for like four hours and then gave up. Okay. So your kids test positive. You're in a two bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. How do you and your husband avoid getting the virus? Um, so we were actually upstate, which is helpful in a house. Okay, good. At this moment, um, which was very convenient. Uh, and, but nonetheless, we're all, you know, each other has, right? So it's like, I'm still caregiver, giver, provider, Zoom, you know, instruction, interference runner, et cetera. Um, and I had at that point one dose of the vaccine. My husband had none. So he quarantined in a room on an air mattress. Uh, and I um, did all the other things. And it was just bonkers. Uh, at first, so I tried, I mean, we all wore masks at home for 10 days. But then at night, it's like, I'm not gonna, you don't sleep in a mask. Right. Like, there were just all these ways it seemed dumb. But, you know, my husband and I kept saying, like, better to do something than nothing. Like, we can't just be like, fuck it. We're all going to get it. Let's just, you know, cuddle on the couch. <laughs> we tried to do something to the extent it was effective. I don't know. But my husband and I avoided getting it somehow. So that's good. Did you have the shield? No shield. No, no. shield. Just just gap masks, you know, like cheesy one, you know, one layer of cloth. Uh, but oh, I think kids you didn't are even, less... You, wait, you didn't even use an N95. I didn't have one. We didn't know. It was just going to be us upstate, right. you know, a little reprieve. And I wasn't going anywhere. I had like a trunk full of groceries that we brought with us. I didn't think, you know... Uh, so no, I didn't need N95s for my children or husband. So it didn't occur to me to come with all of my supplies. Well, congr uh, congr congratulations I, on not getting the virus. That's a, I feel like that's... Thanks. I, I mean, research has made clear to me kids are not very efficient at transmitting it. So even if they have it, you know, their bodies are less less good at infecting others well that's good to hear because i'm we're right now at the point where we're going to send our eldest our daughter i think back we've been sort of holding off we were waiting for spring break and it's such a weird like frustrating thing to have to monitor because everything is so fluid and even the experts don't fully know what's going on a lot of the time you know it's because they're constantly reacting to new information and Exactly. It's like, you know, in Michigan, there's this huge new surge and in Oregon, they're locking down again. And yet in Los Angeles now, it's like the restaurants are opening and, but New when, York too. I know, but when are, when is the, you know, Oregon thing going to happen here? Is it going to, is there going to be another wave? Do you know what I'm saying? And I don't know. You just have to kind of read the news every day and try to do your best. And hope that everyone around you is getting vaccinated. I think, I mean, what's up with people not getting vaccinated? I don't know. Uh, it makes me so furious and upset. Yeah. I don't know. My older sister, I hope it's okay for me to say this, but at first she was like, I don't know. 
And my entire family was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, we all hounded Mm -hmm. her to get the vaccine, and she did. But uh, I guess people, like, maybe don't want to, like, it was like, I don't want to put something in my body. I'm like, what? I I could not get the vaccine. I've heard so many theories. I know. I couldn't get it fast enough. I was like, great. Shoot me up. Totally. Me too. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So I want to, uh, I want to talk about parenthood a little bit more, um, because I was very touched by the essay about your son and his desire like his child desire to be a policeman (laughs) Mm -hmm. which in this era i think i can understand how that could be perceived as particularly fraught or just like strange or challenging for a parent you know the times that we live in um i think the profession uh law enforcement's taken a hit you know reputationally uh, over the past Mm -hmm. couple of years especially so uh, i feel you on that for good reason yeah and i'm like uh at the same time, I totally sympathized with you and not wanting to like, for lack of a better word, police your son's mm-hmm. like cosplay or cosplay or however you pronounce that, you know, because he's a kid. He doesn't, you know, have political context and all the baggage that comes with, you know, everything that's been in the news uh, and everything that's been happening. And on my end, like my son is like super into Star Wars and yet he's fixated on the dark side. Like <laughs> he only wants to be Vader. Well, you guys are doomed. Yeah. I mean, but I guess like it's that I, it's just like that idea of like how much are we supposed to do as parents? I guess it's fine. He loves Darth Maul. I guess there's something sure. f- fun about the power of evil. <laughs> it's yes. And I think that's, it's much more exciting too. It's but, like he gets, yeah. I- inhabiting a role. He, you know, I don't know if he inhabits that role or he just plays with his figures. My my sons do it all the ways. Are they Star Wars too? No, they're not. For oh. some reason, it's very disappointing to my husband. But okay, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's still time, but he's just went all in and the face paint and the du- double sided lightsaber and knows all the words and listens like amazing talks about john williams as his favorite composer <laughs> it's like it's very it's very involved uh-huh. <laughs> um so when you start to write one of your essays like do you have uh like from a process standpoint is there a similar thread that 
you could point to? Are they, do they all originate differently? Yes. Okay. So let's talk about one then. Let's talk about how these things okay. materialize because I think a lot of my listeners love this sort of talk. There are a lot of them are at home writing or trying to write. Um, you're working with memory. You're working on very personal stuff. Um, can we like pick an essay if you have like a memory of how it originated for you and maybe we can yeah, work I, that way? I would be pleased to talk about Boy in Blue, which is the essay you're referencing, which I think was the hardest one. That one maybe took me the longest, um, if only because I think the stakes are very high in writing about white privilege uh, and writing about racial politics, uh, and they should be very high. So I, my initial approach to this subject was, as I reveal in the essay, um, when I was 16, I committed an idiotic shoplifting crime and got caught um, and evaded any serious consequences. And we all hear stories all the time of how this plays out very differently for people who look different than I do. Uh, so the essay used to be sort of equally weighted between that episode and then my son's, um, you know, cop obsession. And um, my editor <laughs> was... I, best, I guess I should say that it was lots of conversations with my editor around how to best do justice to this subject I was trying to explore. Uh, I wound up reading tons and tons of books, none of which you'd like made it in. I mean, I have old drafts, um, but you know, I'm even like looking at my bookshelf, like books about the prison industrial complex, books about the history of policing, but like reading, reading, reading. And I don't, really know how I imagined that material making it into the essay, but I just felt like to be a responsible sort of composer of this subject, approaching it from whatever angle, I just wanted to like be as informed as I could. Uh, so I think that really is an answer to a process question because it's a lot of what you don't see. It's like all of the information that hopefully maybe makes it in in subtle ways or informs my angle of approach in some way. Uh, and also the challenge with that essay is that, and my son's um, fixation persists. I mean, this is going on three years. We live next door to a police precinct, which is part of it, I think. Uh, but, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement really erupted this summer and my book was already done and I was like wait give me that one back and I was making like late stage edits to try to keep up with what was happening and I think when you write about current events that is always a tricky risk because by the time your book publishes these things take forever to actually hit shelves maybe whatever you were writing about won't seem relevant or in some ways you know will be missing major um pieces so I think the challenges were the subject matter writ large and then also the timing. Yeah. When you talk about the stakes being high, I have that feeling. What I was thinking about when you said that is like, yeah, like I can relate trying to write something about something that's particularly charged or complex or heated and yeah. just wanting to make sure you don't screw it up. And then also like comparing it in my mind to having conversations around those things and at least with writing, you have the chance to edit yourself. Like I've waded into that 
kind of terrain in conversations on this show before. And every time I do, you know, I feel like I lock up a little bit or it's, you know, it's, it feels dangerous. <laughs> uh, yeah, like you're out on a, on a wire. I think it is. I think there are so many ways to be an accidental asshole. Uh, so I think I was really trying to avoid those, those minds if I could, but you know, we all have our own vantage points and biases. They're just like sort of baked in to us. So it's a really hard challenge, I think, to write in spite of them or write through them or something and, and come out on the other side, having done a responsible job. Yeah. Well, no. And like, now you're bouncing me like in, like, like in somewhat of, in a somewhat similar way, uh, to how your essays operate. Like you're bouncing me and pivoting. I'm in my in my mind, I'm thinking of the essay about Aleppo. Is it Saul? Is that the, the yeah. man you go well, through? Oh, that's a pseudonym, but yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. So Saul in the essay, uh, you know, you're talking, there's a, a point in that essay that I think is particularly poignant where you're talking about, uh, politics and political vantage point and biases and bigotry and all the things that, though it's uncomfortable, I think for a lot of people to consider live within us all. Like it's, it's hard mm -hmm. to, I don't know, sometimes in, in conversations around things like justice and race and, um, all that kind of stuff that gets lost in the shuffle that we're all bringing our own baggage to every conversation. Even if we wish we weren't, even if we like to think of ourselves as being, um, on the side of, good and what is right you know it's right. impossible to completely divest yourself of your biases of course of course i think about this a lot as a teacher too uh, and how we are consuming one another's pieces and trying to make my students aware uh, of the ways in which we bring our biases with us i mean i don't know if i succeed there but it's definitely something i like to converse with them about yeah. Well, I mean, but how, yeah, like I struggle with it because on the one hand, yes, you know, it's great to be conscious of your own biases and how those might be informing your work or even hurting it, you know? And, uh, on the other hand, I can sometimes find myself frustrated by maybe some of the impatience that we have with one another sometimes. Like, like you said, there's a lot of ways to be an accidental asshole my inclination most of the time is to forgive somebody who's operating from good intent, but might stumble into something and accidentally be an asshole. <laughs> like, I don't know. Right. We got to give each other, like, I think we all have to do a better job. Uh, I'm not saying that there's nothing to be done. Of course, there's lots to be done and we can, uh, like, I can certainly stand to improve in, in a multitude of ways, but like somehow that's got to be balanced against some patience and context. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I hear, I do. I hear you. I hear all that. I also think, you know, sometimes the, when you say stumble, I mean, that's a big category, right? So I think there are, I've been, you know, at the receiving end of various kinds of unsavory behavior that for, you know, for men that for a long time was, you know, acceptable. Right. So it's like, he stumbled, but he didn't realize that he shouldn't like pat my ass at the Xerox machine because, <laughs> right. you know, right. we all just pat asses in this office or whatever. Right. We're a very affectionate culture here. <laughs> we just, yeah, that's just how we show 
show our appreciation for your good work. Uh, so I think having conversations around what that stumble is, right. is important too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think I was thinking of more like somebody saying something like using like word choice or, you know. Yes. I think there are so many ways um, to stumble. In fact, um, I have a friend who um, works for somebody who will rename nameless, like a high profile person who was accused of something. And, and, and my friend um, believes deeply that it was a false accusation, but his, this person's reputation has now really like, I don't know, gone into the gutter. What's a good metaphor here? Tanked. And we've been talking about the ways in which like movements like the Me Too movement, which are essential and which I wholeheartedly support. And I write about this in, in the book too, um, or at least my experience, you know, sort of coming clean with all the ways in which um, unsavory behavior has touched me, literally. Uh, I think uh, there's an overcorrection that is a risk and ways in which I think somebody points to somebody else and there's not like thoughtful interrogation or comprehensive consideration and sort of the default now because we're I feel like there's compensation for centuries of shitty behavior is is just to close the door um and even as a woman I find that to be problematic yeah I'm yeah so, you're just like you're speaking my mind I have v many of the same thoughts around like trying to balance like believing people when they say something they've been mistreated with my uh my feeling that due process matters right <laughs> do you know what i'm saying like how do you you have I to like there's a way yeah i think both can i think they can coexist and believe women is as a you know a declaration i believe in i think it's a complicated coexistence between you know I also, I think the nature of the accusation matters. Right. Um, so again, the fuzzy stumble uh, conversation, right? Sort of what is it that's being pointed out? The nature of the like, stumble. Yeah. Is it the hand on the ass at the Xerox machine or is it like, you know, gang rape or something atrocious, right? Like there are different kinds. Yeah. Of accusations. So... Uh, I want to shift gears and ask you about um, the essay where, I mean, one of the through lines in the book is Judaism, your relationship to Judaism, your relationship to your own spiritual life or lack thereof. You know, you don't seem like you're uh, a super believer in God um, on the page, at least. I don't know if anything shifted since publication. Are or... you saying that because I... <laughs> Cause I crossed out the word God in, that, <laughs> in multiple places. Is I, that, is that my giveaway? Maybe. I mean, kind of <laughs> led me to believe, but, uh, it's something that you definitely have put a lot of thought into and it, it certainly pops up in multiple places in this collection. Uh, and then I kind of felt like it clarified itself best for me in the essay about, uh, the therapist and the astrology where you're kind of going at it, you know, th this, this resonates with me because it seems like kind of where I am. You know, you go to a therapist, you're talking to your therapist about anxiety or whatever it is that 
uh, you might be struggling with. And this is kind of like the Western medicine, rational, logical approach to dealing with human suffering. And then your therapist, you know, I think I can't remember exactly how it went down. Was it like you brought up astrology and then to your surprise, your therapist was like, yeah, I know this greatest. I, I made, I made a, like a comment to something being written in the stars. It was just like an expression. Right. And she said, oh, well, if you're if you're interested in astrology, you should call my person, basically. And I was like, you have a person <laughs> who believes in this. OK. Um, and she's like an incredibly whip smart, erudite, well-read, science believing person who has, you know, really been instrumental in in helping me. So. I, th I went more as, out of curiosity than I did because I thought, you know, I would be saved in some way. But the, um, I guess the question that always comes that always comes to mind for me is like it's one of le legitimacy. Like, is there anything to it? Is there any there there? You know, when it comes to astrology and the planets, and I don't know anything about it. Like, I don't even know what my rising sign. I don't know anything. I know my birthday. And I my... didn't either. Okay. Yeah, I can't even remember what she said my rising sign was. And she told me, and I think I even wrote it and I still don't remember. This is how <laughs> disconnected I feel yeah. from that whole and, sort of domain. Okay. I'm reading your facial expression. It sounds like you're just like, no, it's bullshit. You don't think it's worth anything. I don't want to call it bullshit because I think it gives people, people find meaning and comfort in it. In the same way, I don't, I mean, can I call the Bible bullshit? People find meaning and comfort in it. You know, I just... I believe in belief and I, I, I know that sounds very woo woo, but I, I mean, it's you going for a hike. I think people find, you know, comfort in and solace in and, and calm in different systems or approaches. So I, I didn't find legitimacy in her reading of my chart, but this is one woman and one client. So I hesitate to make like sort of a generalized statement. I don't feel the need to look further to find like a more authoritative <laughs> astrologer. Um, I don't know. Is that answering your question? Yeah, I know. I think like part of me is I, I guess I'm willing to believe that maybe, yeah, maybe like the way that the cosmos were behaving at the time of my birth somehow informs who I am. Like we're all made of stars, just... right? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I have no poker face, so... Yeah, I I have a very hard time believing that to be the case. But I have beloved, bright friends who believe very strongly in the other camp. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe they have better astrologers or something. Possible. What What do you think happens when we die? Um, you go in the ground, and you turn to dust. Damn. Is that so grim? Yeah. Oh, I asked this of a recent, another, I, I, I used to ask this all the time. I want to get back to it because I think it's such an elemental oh, question, God. but you're the second turn to dust. Lights go out, turn to dust in a row. I don't, and what do you think? I tend I to can say, I don't know. Cause I'm an agnostic, but I don't know either, but I think like, I guess like the more optimistic, like clinging to the idea of some kind of uh, continuation would be reincarnation. The circular way that nature tends to work. I could see like maybe there's some sort of 
continuation in that way. Like you're reborn in some other form or I don't know. But is it you? But am I me now? Like, oh gosh. Yeah. I mean like you that. You seem like you. I do seem like me, but I think maybe that's like a misperception, <laughs> like this false of self. Of whose? Of mine. Like you don't think you're you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think. My I, brain hurts. No, yeah. There's like, it's complicated, but there's like, you know, there's conventional reality in which like, yes, I have a social security number and a driver's license and I'm me, but there's also ultimate reality where nothing can be by itself alone. And I'm really like an amalgam of all these different elements. And there's no essential Brad Listy that if you started to peel me apart, you could find. There's nothing you can point to that's essentially me. Like my body's not me because it's going to just turn to dust, as you say. My mind is not me because that too is going to disintegrate. Um, but isn't it you now that's uh, operational? On a conventional level, yes. But like okay. right now, as we're talking. So it sounds like you're saying you're not you when you die, but that you're you when you're alive. <laughs> kind of. It's, yeah, I'm still working on it. And Okay. I'm Come trying, back to me. Yeah, I'll get back to you later as I approach <laughs> the the uh, abyss. <laughs> um, so, okay. So let's talk about you and like your creative history. Um, you were raised in what? Suburban New York City? Like out, outside of New York. Um, you have an artsy mother and a teacher father, which you talk about in the book and it makes sense in terms of how you like because you're academic but you're also artsy like you've got kind of both look at that and your mom which i got to talk about this your mother was a musician mm -hmm. in her young adulthood once mm -hmm. opened for the doors sure did dated Jimi hendrix unclear but i think so okay that's cool i mean that's like a story it to is. hang your hat on and you kind of talk about this oh like the yeah, these were the fun facts that I that I used to make me cooler in high school. I, I I liberally talked about it. And before anyone new came over for like a hang, I'd be like, Oh, do you know this about my mom? <laughs> you know. We we had a little wall of fame in our den. It was like her and Jimmy, her like featured in the village voice, her album cover. Um, so she certainly wasn't shy about the fame side of it, I don't think, clearly. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I always thought it was super cool. And I got to wear all of her amazing outfits for Halloween. <laughs> Which she kept. Yeah, in the attic. Mm -hmm. I'm trying. Like, I have nothing even remotely comparable. I would have made, <laughs> I mean, if I had had that sort of connection uh, in my family history, I would have made hay with that in high school, too. I mean, that would have gotten me far. Right? I know. Did it you, was a good one. Did you get any of the musical gift? You can sing a little bit? No. Nothing? Not really. No. I married a musician, though. Oh, you did? Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, what was the name of your mom's band? I think I kept asking myself that. There's an album. Of... Yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't put it in there. Did I put it in there? I don't think you did. Uh, I didn't. I didn't. There were some, like... There are some shifts I made to protect her privacy. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll, I'm just curious. I want to like listen to some of her music. I'm totally curious. Can yeah, can you, maybe can... maybe offline I'll send you a. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, 
So, but you grow up outside of New York, you have some proximity to the city. I've talked to writers who had this experience, either they lived in Manhattan or one of the outer boroughs, or they lived in like the suburbs and could easily get into the city on the train. And Mm -hmm. that strikes me as such an awesome way to grow up, to have. Yeah. When I was 14, I hopped on the train and got a, went went to Greenwich Village to get a fake ID. That's awesome. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, as a kid, as a kid who was in Indiana playing tag at a shopping mall in suburban Indianapolis, I mean, this sounds. I mean, I did, I did some of that too, but then I would put on dark <laughs> lipstick and frown, and they would take my photo for the, for the fake ID. Wow. Okay. So, you're doing that, and as a kid, um, anxious, not like crazy anxious, but definitely anxious. Growing up Jewish, bat mitzvah. A lot of like the, man, a lot of the ways in which you describe like teen social dynamics uh, and especially I think among girls, I, I grew up with sisters, like it really brought a lot of that back for me. It was very like, very accurate. And it makes me think of the ways that those years in particular imprint themselves on us, maybe in ways that we don't necessarily even understand until we s- sit down to write about it. <laughs> Um, exactly. And and I think not everybody does look and think about it. But did it either. surprise you? Did it surprise you when you like did anything? I mean, I know you have all this source material. We talked about having like a VHS of your bat mitzvah and having your diaries and everything. But I think sometimes when you sit down to revisit memory, even if it's memory that feels like searing um, and really sticky, like I've had the experience where like you start to muck around in there and all of a sudden something will come back to you and you'll be like, oh, my God, like I had you know, I totally forgot about this, or there's some element of it that you, you know, that somehow got buried and it comes back to the surface. Yeah. I'm literally looking at my table of contents to remember for which essays this was true. I think, um, the bat mitzvah essay, uh, which, where I talk about these adolescent social dynamics, I, you know, none of that, um, came as a surprise. Like, I mean, watching it, I was like, Oh God, look at my shoulder pads or like, Oh man. Like I remember that dance move, whatever. (laughs) But I don't think there was anything, there weren't any like salient memories that I had repressed or forgotten that were resurrected. Um, but an essay like hot for teacher, which is about a student who, you know, hit on me in front of the class as soon as I started to write it, it was kind of amazing how quickly and easily other experiences just began to surface. And ones that I hadn't spent a lot of brain space meditating on, but were clearly saved in some capacity. Sure. So I I do think there are subjects that lend themselves to this sort of opening up. Yeah. That's, that's such a great essay. The, the hot for teacher one, I, I guess like when I got into it, I, I didn't, I mean, I should have known I was the title kind of tells you what's going to happen. But I remember being like, <gasps> you know, in that moment happens where the student does this. And I, I think back to being a college student and having like a film history teacher who was sort of new and attractive. And I remember there was like, you know, there's kind of like murmuring among the guy students, you know, how that sort of happens. Mm-hmm. And then, sure. But this guy, you know, I know we're kind of pivoting here, but he crosses the line just so listeners at home understand. And like you said, hits on you would kind of be an understatement. Um, uh-huh. It's like so he, he writes, you want me to describe? Yes. He, he, uh, I had given an assignment. It was a creative writing class to describe 
more than anything, a character wants something to teach them that desire is motivational for a character and can lead to conflict, which can lead to good dramatic stories. Uh, and I had them all go around and read their first sentences to show the variety of ways in which desire can manifest in a character. And some of the answers were quite tangible, more than anything, she wants French fries. Some of them were more abstract, more than anything, he wants to live forever. And then this dude, who more than anything wanted to take his Tuesday writing teacher uh, passionately atop her desk beside her pile of ungraded papers, which were to my right, uh, and show her that only he could love her in the way the romantic poetry she taught them could convey and blah, blah, et cetera. And it was all one very long, page-long sentence. So when I said, read your first sentence, he got to read the whole damn thing oh my out God. loud. Yeah, like the, the most harrowing part of it is like you managing your response in real time. Like, uh, you <laughs> oh, know, man. yeah, but you did it. I think you did it well. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. I mean, the, that's a great question. Yeah. But I also think, you know, I think about what might have happened to him now if he did this, if this happened at my current institution in 2021, um, what would the response be? Because at the time he got a finger wag and was removed from the class and assigned an independent study with like a brilliant novelist. And I was like, he got a better deal than the other students in the class. Wow. Yeah. What do you think would happen right? today? Uh, there would be some censure of like serious censure. Yeah. I, I had a student this semester who did something grossly inappropriate and she, um, she paid a price. Yeah. I'm thinking back. I used to teach, uh, you know, creative writing at uh, Santa Monica college for five years. And I had a, a student who in her final exam, it was like a, you know, an essay, like expository section of it, of the exam. Maybe it was the whole thing. I remember just the blue books and they had to write about something. I gave them like some writing prompts. Oh, the blue books. The blue books. Oh, yeah. I have like PTSD. And I remember I was dating my wife at the time and I finished, it was like the last class of the semester. You know, you're wrapping up, they hand in their exams. I, there's a three hour window for the exam. And you had to sort of allow for somebody to take the, the full three hours. You know, I had to sit there and be a proxy for as long as it as anybody needed for that window of time. And so I remember this young woman like used an hour more than anybody else. Like everybody else finished in like an hour and just like threw the blue book at me. And she was just there just like working on this essay and working mm -hmm. on it. And she was very quiet, you know? Um, and you know, when class ended, I said, thank you so much. Like, you know, have a good summer kind of thing. And I took her blue book and, added it to the pile, put the pile in my bag and like drove. It was empty. Tell me it was empty. No, no, no. <laughs> no but I drove back to my wife's, uh, my, you know, my now wife's uh, apartment. And we were sitting in her little front lawn outside of her apartment building. And I started to go through the blue books and I started to read this girl's blue book. And it was like, you know, a full blue book. And it was the most sexually graphic story. <laughs> oh my God. Like, like. And it also, like, it was like a describe an embarrassing, it was like, I think it was describe an embarrassing moment. And it was like getting caught. You to do that in a book? Oh, no. I mean, something like, it was really, I mean, it was, it was pretty simple. Like, you know, I was trying to keep it, it was an undergraduate and, you know, kind of like entry level creative writing type workshop. And 
but it was like gross too. It was like involved like scrambled eggs getting caught by her <laughs> boyfriend's mom. I was just like, it was so wrong, you know? And I was like, wow, this is just not oh, what no. I was expecting at all. And I guess she did the she assignment. Had to get the details right. Yeah. She, she was committed to getting the details right. Yeah. But I just, I don't know. It's a curveball. Students can surprise you and. Yes. You know, clearly that's the case, but that's a really powerful essay and one where, you know, the morality of it, like in the way of great essays, like it really, it brought a lot of questions to mind, you know, about how to handle things and like what expectations are like, not only to how to handle things in the moment, um, but also like, as we just talked about, like, what are the repercussions for something like that? How much forgiveness should be allowed an 18 year old kid, I'm guessing that's about the age range versus, uh, you know, a 24 year old man, right? You know, it's like, where do we, where do we, um, like draw the line and how do we navigate that terrain in a way that, um, feels just, do you know what I'm saying? I do. And additionally, how do we raise boys into men who don't do that? Yeah. I've had, I just had that conversation with somebody, um, and, you know, I guess a lot of people who, especially people who have boys, little boys, and don't want them to grow mm -hmm. up to be jerks, you know, think a lot about how we talk to our, it's not only how we talk to our kids, but I think a lot of it is like, what does the culture communicate? Like, what is the culture communicating to boys that's giving them information about what it means to be a man and how you're supposed to behave? This is my boy in blue essay too, completely. It's like... Why does he want to be, why does he associate violence with power? How do I uh, disentangle this? How do I demonstrate alternative models? Uh, how, how, how do, do you? I, how do you? Like, how do you disentangle them? How do you demonstrate? I have only questions, Brad. No answers. <laughs> okay, good. Because me too. You know, I, <laughs> I want to know what to do, but I almost feel like there's, I feel like you can, you can try your best to model the kind of behavior you hope that they will, you know, later uh, model for their own kids or whatever. But at a certain point, it feels like it's just out of control. Like my kids are on YouTube. My son, like I said, is like totally into Darth Maul and like like knows the entire scene where he stabs. What's the, you know, mm -hmm. what's the, I forget the guy's name, but he would know it. You know, like he knows all that stuff. And I'm like, is this bad? And yet I remember no, my own childhood, like I played like guns and laser guns and I had a BB gun that looked like an M16 and I don't know, I turned out okay. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, so we have a no gun policy and it's not because I think it's a gateway to his becoming a violent monster. It's because I can't stand the sight of it. So it's totally self-motivated. It just like gun culture in this country is so fucked up and so upsetting so persistent that I just, I can't support it. I don't want to support a toy company that's making that shit. I just, and I know it's like a tiny little, like nugget of protest that does nothing, but it soothes me <laughs> to, to stamp my foot in that way. It's dumb. Uh, and believe me, my six-year-old lets me know just how dumb the cop, that is the because one who all he be... wants in his life our right. toy guns. What about a, what um, about like a and, laser gun? If, if it's like attached to a fantasy kind of thing, does that differentiate it? I don't know. You know, <laughs> now we're really getting to the weeds here. A lightsaber? Like is a lightsaber okay? That's the thing. Yeah, I guess. 
and I don't, I don't think I, you know, came up with like all the sort of codes under my umbrella policy <laughs> that, that make clear the parameters. Um, but he, you know, finds, he makes guns out of Legos. He makes guns out of cushions, you know, whatever he can find. Right. It's like rabid. It's so, um, so but maybe I, it's having the opposite effect. Well, that's the thing, though, is that like I feel like little boys, to a certain extent, are going to find this stuff one way or another. It's almost like it's almost innate, which sort of freaks me out. No, ditto. And so, nature nurture. I don't know. Can I do anything to forestall it to run interference? I'm going to try my damnedest, even if it only makes him salivate more. It's <laughs> turning out. He's going to be. He's going to. Be just like armed to the teeth when he's twenty-two. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, you're wrong. All right, so let's uh, let's get back to your your bio and like especially your writing bio. Like I'm always interested in how guests on this show are sort of formed. Like we talked about your mom and her musical past, and your dad as an educator, um, and then this proximity to New York, which you know I got to know different settings all sorts of different settings can yield a writer as you know as is obvious but i feel like proximity to new york kind of helps uh, i don't know that's just like I'm not my... sure no i mean i feel like i've I'm always not... i feel like people who grew up like people i know who grew up in cities especially like a big city like new york or la i went to college in boulder in colorado with a, a, a guy that i always think of when it comes to this kind of conversation and he always seemed sharper like definitely sharper than I uh, than I was. But why does that? Why does sharp make an artist? Oh, I don't know. Just like maybe, just like a little bit more worldly, exposed to things. Um, not as I think insulated. you're overestimating what what my suburb that I grew up in was like. I mean, it was a suburb. Yeah. Very much a suburb. Which one was it outside in Connecticut? So it's in Westchester County. It's Mamaroneck. Okay. I don't know. Heard of it. I think about all the kids from my pretty large high school, not that many writers. So I don't know if our proximity to New York, you know, okay. was I'm, meaningful. I I'm reaching, I'm reaching, but it just seems like you would have like at least some like whiff of possibility that it's like possible to be an artist. But of course your mother. I think exactly right. And and she continued to make jewelry when I was growing up and she was very artistic. Even her, like her lens, like we couldn't take a walk without her pointing out some cool pattern or some, you know, the way people's canes were lined up to look like a heart or like whatever it might have been. She was just regularly um, drawing attention to, you know, seeing the world not as it is. Right. You know, just seeing more deeply, more thoroughly um, from other angles. And I, I mean, I think that's a really beautiful way to look at the world. Well, and I also, yeah, I agree. And I think also just like, having it be kind of normal to be artistic as opposed to being right. like an outlier. Like your mother was modeling that it's like, yeah, this is a way you can be in the world. It's not like a defect. <laughs> That's right. I, I do think it's more of a leap though, that this is a way you can earn a living because <laughs> she was an artist as a hobby. I mean, she didn't make it make money from this. You know, I think when she was a musician, maybe a little, um, but she gave that up and then she had other artistic pursuits, but they were they were hobbies. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking I was reading the interview you did with um, Lynn Steger Strong 
uh, for the Paris Review, and I had Lynn on this show. I loved her book, uh, Want. I love her book. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she was like, one of the things she said, she's like, why, you know, the pandemic, you know, has kind of forced us to reexamine a lot of things and thinking about writing and like why any of us do this. And when I think about like the issue of how to make a living and do this like very hard work, like writing a book is hard. It takes a lot of time and energy. And then, you know, 9,999 times out of 10,000, the book goes out into the world and it's certainly not going to deliver any kind of windfall. You know what I'm saying? Like even, even very, very good books, you know, there's so many really good books that go out there and, 500 people find them. Uh, and, I know, isn't that crazy? And lucky for them, lucky for them. But I know. like the math of it can stagger me sometimes. And yet yep. here I am on episode 700 and something of this show. I'm still interested in talking to writers. I'm still trying to write. I'm 45 years old. Uh, why are we doing this? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, because we're masochists. Uh I mean, it's certainly not for the payday. That's abundantly clear. I think if you, I don't know, it, it, for me, it's, I want to say compulsive, but I think it's deeper than that too. And I think, um, you know, you talked about how social dynamics and adolescence can, you know, leave an imprint on us that we don't even realize until we look at it. I think I've always been a looker. <laughs> like I wanted to better understand what the hell that was or what is this and what's that doing and how can I react to or think about or process that? I, I think this, that is sort of a, a characteristic. And I think writing facilitates that in a really concrete way. Okay. Is there, like, are there any incidents or things that happened, you know, that you either bore witness to or happened to you? when you were a young person that you in your own, maybe in your own self mythology, look back on and say, this is probably, you know, this definitely informed my decision to be a writer. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to overdo it, but I think we, we sometimes form our idea of ourselves by looking back at our past and pointing to certain things that feel pivotal. Yeah. It's, I don't think like my personal narrative has that sort of convenient, experience but I do know that by far my favorite like academic experience in elementary school do we have academic experiences in elementary school I don't know was was binding a book like I just remember how thrilling it was and then it was like the author's showcase and the parents came and it was like that's my book I made that book and that was so thrilling I also think I, I mean, I remember the experience of reading certain books and being like, holy shit, I want to do that. So I think it had more to do with how I connected to like literature and books than it did to my personal life, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Um, so when you were a teenager going on, getting ready to go off to college, was writing on your mind then? Like, was it something that you... Yes. So, so this came to you at a young age? Yeah, I, I was you know, entering cheesy poetry contests in high school. Uh, yeah, I, I really loved, I was, I mean, that I wrote some, some pretty bad shit, but I loved trying. Do you still have it? it? I have one because it was in the newspaper and I remember my grandma cut it out and 
sent it to me and I saved it just because it had a little note from her and I thought that was very sweet. Um, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was called last night I ate darkness. Do you remember it? <laughs> I remember that we had the assignment to pull a line from a book and write a poem inspired by it. And mine was from their eyes were watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, which was a book that like blew my mind because it was so lush and gorgeous and there was still a story in it. And I, I always thought those were separate houses. It was like, oh, here's the pretty language and that lives in poetry. And here's like the dry spare story written by an old dead white man and that's a novel. <laughs> right. Uh, and then I saw them together and I was like, oh my God. So that I think that even that, no, there was a line in the poem that came from that book. Oh, but Zora Neale Hurston didn't write Last Night I Ate Darkness. <laughs> that was all me. That was all you. I'm going to copy that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So you go off to school. Uh, where did you go to college? I went to the University of Pennsylvania. Okay. I have a friend who went to Pennsylvania. I don't know. I think I might be older than you, though. But uh, I have a couple, years. couple friends who went to Penn. And so you're, what, taking creative writing classes? You're an English major? I, my first semester, I took a creative writing class. Um, yeah, but I didn't, yeah. I mean, I couldn't tell you what I wanted to be. I could tell you what I like thought sounded dreamy. But yeah, I was an English major. And a studio art was a major, and then it became a minor because of two credits. <clears throat> but anyway, I was studying both. I was also a painter. Oh, cool. And like, what was the, yeah, you, you write about this a little bit too. My memory is terrible, but yeah, you, what kind of painting were you doing? Yeah. I don't think I really wrote about it. I wrote that I had a panic attack in the like fine arts building bathroom. That's okay. not really writing about. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I loved, I love studio. I still do love studio art. So I was doing drawing and painting and photography, oils, acrylics. Like, could yeah, you paint some, I guess I, I'm, I'm so bad at talking about art, but like, could you paint somebody's portrait or are you more so like I abstract? did so after college? That was my job. Actually, I was hired as a, by a couple of families to do portraits, um, because it's something I just figured out I could do. That's cool. Yeah, it's cool. Do you still do it like a little on the side, like hobby? I don't, I, I doodle a lot. Okay. I doodle yeah. a lot too, but my doodles suck. You're, you probably are good. No, my doodles look like really dark and disturbed. And sometimes I doodle on student papers and then give them back. And then I'm like, oh, shit. You know, I, I just hand them back. I used students. to do that, too. Yeah. I, but the thing about me is that I can, I, I can draw a cartoon. And people will sometimes look at my cartoon guy. It's like a cartoon guy. And they'll be like, oh, my God. Like, same this one. Is, same one. And what I have to explain to people is that, like, this is the only thing I can draw. And I just draw it over and over but you've again. you've perfected it. I have. Because you kept doing it. I have a system and I know how to do it and I do different variations on it. But like, it's like, uh, I can do that guy. And then over the years, like I always try to like draw like a cartoon woman and I can't do it. I can't draw like a successful cartoon woman that doesn't look like a cartoon man with like a fro. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, and boobs. Yeah. I, yeah. I was like, I don't know how to do, I don't know how to do it. Like I just, my limitations as an artist, like present themselves like immediately. Um, but you're forgetting you go. Okay. So you're at Penn. You're like, all, you know, you're already 
like self-aware enough to understand what you're interested in and you're majoring in it. And I'm imagining you have some like short stories buried somewhere that were part of a creative writing class that you took as an undergrad, you know, those early yes. attempts. And then mm -hmm. did you get an MFA? I did. Okay. So that was Johns Hopkins. So first, first, yeah, first I um, thought I, I could apply my love of writing to journalism. So I work as a journalist, um, but my work kept getting more and more creative. And I remember my last journalistic job, I was working at the Earth Times. It's now defunct, but it was connected to the United Nations. And I had to learn this whole vocabulary, like NGOs and, you know, all, all right. of this terrain that was unfamiliar. And I pitched an article. I wanted to sit in the cafe at the UN and, and overhear people's conversations and then like stitch them together into a collage. And I was like, <laughs> man, I'm not, I can't, I'm not a journalist. Uh, but I, that's what I wrote. I wrote that. And then I was like, okay, dear MFA admissions committee, yes. <laughs> please take this, Please like save me for myself. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that speaks to me. It's the kind of thing I think I would have done just trying to make it interesting, you know, as you're like re yeah, reading some. Like, don't... Yeah. Don't... Isn't that what people want to hear? Like, uh, it's what, what I would want to hear. It's what I, I think that actually sounds like something I would enjoy reading, but I feel like I can imagine you sitting there reading some like dry, like either Wikipedia page or something online about what an NGO is and just being like, Oh my God, like I'm glazing over. <laughs> They do good work, those NGOs. I, it was just not the right fit. I feel like just writing about things in, you know, a very straightforward, rigid manner was never going to be suitable. Yeah. Path. And, I, you know, you have like a really deft way uh, in your work. I think Lynn, Lynn Strong spoke of this too, like when in the interview that you guys did where she's talking about how quickly it pivots. Like there's a lot of velocity in these essays, which I always appreciate, not just in essays or in these memoirs, um, apologies, but um, just in writing in general, you know, when you really feel like there's no wasted motion, it's moving, it's surprising, it's taking me somewhere. But also like, you know, there are like really seamless leaps in time, which when they're seamless, I feel like that's a, there's a lot of skill involved in that. I've, I always notice that when it happens because I know from my own experience that it's a pain in the ass to do, um, yeah. to make sure you're doing that without losing the the reader in time. You know, it's very easy to disorient right. somebody when you're pivoting as much as you pivot, but you're, I never found myself lost in your collection. So kudos, kudos to you. Uh, do you have any like understanding of how you did it other than just like revise it a million times? <laughs> you know, are there any rules that you've come up with for how to, manage velocity in a memoir or an essay it's going to sound so snotty to say that that's not even something i think about consciously uh, but i also think that per this question about sort of artistic evolution i went to grad school at 23 and it took me like 18 years to write a book you know so not that i was working on the same book all that time but i have been practicing and practicing you know, with middling success and then some, some, you know, some more success. But it, I think the more you do this thing, for me, this is how it has worked. Like the more intuitive it becomes or the more I figure out my own rhythms and then I'm just sort of able to do that thing. It doesn't always come out, you know, whole and perfect, but I'm a much better editor of myself 
uh, I can, yeah, I just, I have a much clearer sense of how I move as a writer. No, that's a really great way of putting it. And I think that, you know, developing, like you can't, there's no shortcut to developing that sense of intuition around your own work. Like it's just a lot of trial right. and error and putting in the hours. And I do want to like, again, make clear. It's not that everything I write is great. It's just that I, I know how to do the thing that I know how to do. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, you know, yeah, you, you get there eventually, you know, to where it, cause it definitely, the feeling that I had reading your collection is that this is fully you. Um, there's never any sense of, but that. I'm not really me, but you're not, <laughs> <laughs> even though you don't really exist in the ultimate sense and you're just a part of a vast universal continuum. Uh, but I don't know, like, I, I guess that's sort of like a basic thing to say, but it just, I love that when I feel like what I'm reading has like a really unified feel to it and a sense that it could only be from this person. Um, and that feels like it can only happen when the writer in question has really done the work, like not just the work on this book, but all the work that wound up in the trash bin. Right. So kind and of, all the years, all the years. Yeah. All the, yeah. like all the absorbing influences and mimicking on the page and, all that stuff. Um, so I want to dig a little deeper because you mentioned journalism and this sort of funny um, experiment as a journalist at the UN for the Earth Times. Mm -hmm. Some of this practical chaos, <laughs> like chaos in pursuit of practical ends, you know, that I think befalls most people who get into this line of work or hope to get into this line of work because you're always grappling with how to pay the rent and also write and yet you don't want to use up all your writer energy on the day job i don't know if you've i'm sure you probably had this thought you know like what if i i'm so focused on all this journalism that like my creative work will suffer maybe that has occurred but it's just well, I, yeah it's ahead. just it's just like i guess for people listening at home it's like i think it's useful to hear about how you find your way and we all have to deal with these challenges and f mm -hmm. eventually find a system of living and working that can somehow in some way accommodate the creative writing that we really want to do. Yes. Uh, and I think, again, this was like right out of college. So I don't think I was confident enough to think that like I could publish books. Right. So I was, I thought this would be how I could channel my interest in writing wasn't like I was doing that in the day and coming home and furiously working on a manuscript. I I was hoping, hence the collage per pitch, that I, this would scratch the itch, um, but it, it wasn't. Uh, and I should also say that I went to grad school for fiction. Both times. Did you go to? Did you go to Johns Hopkins? I did, and then I went to the University of Arizona. Oh right. At the time, Johns Hopkins was a one-year MA. Um, and I picked it because I wanted to write my novel in the fastest amount of time. <laughs> and that really worked out. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and, um, yeah, and then, you know, many years later, debuted with a book of nonfiction. Just strange circuitry of... But you I went to know, Arizona. You went to Arizona afterwards because it was a longer program and would give you some more time to work? Right. So you could get an MFA after you procured an MA. So I just applied to the programs that would fund me. Right. 
and then chase the funding, whoever offered it, um, so that I could do that without having to hold down a job. Smart. Although I was employed as a, you know, an instructor also to right. earn my keep. Right, right, right. Uh, and then even after Arizona, I mean, I'm assuming you're probably working on your novel at Arizona as well. Mm-hmm. And that, it was. that novel is in a drawer somewhere. Is that correct? Oh gosh. I, I don't, it's like underground. It's underground. Yeah. <laughs> you a, actually a drawer is too, is too close to the surface. <laughs> um, but this is an interesting like notion to consider is how we conceive of ourselves in a certain way artistically, or, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of how we conceive of our own identity. And often it takes a while to realize that actually, no, I'm not this thing. I'm that thing, or I'm not best suited to write X, but I'm really actually best suited to write Y. And look, you may have a novel that you're working on, or you may write a novel down the road. That's fabulous. And you can do both, you know, but I don't know. I I feel some of that. Like you have a sense of like who you think you are, who you want to be. And maybe it has something to do with your heroes, you know, and the people you're trying to emulate Mm -hmm. before you have a full sense of your own purpose and self. Um, but can you just talk about like the, for lack of a better word, like the journey you took from like wanting to be that novel, write that novel and be that novelist to, like you said, debuting with memoirs. Right. So I was almost exclusively working on short fiction. I didn't care whether it was a book of short stories or a novel. I think fiction was my first language as a creative writer and felt to me like a language I wished to speak in the world. Um, so I, I was working on short fiction, short fiction. Um, I won a prize, which, you know, got me some attention. Is the Sunday Times Short Story Award, which is basically equivalent to my annual salary. Uh, and people came sniffing around for my book of fiction. Basically, I had one good story that won, really. <laughs> uh, and I had recently become a mom. And while I was working on fiction, I was watching... These things happen with my children, and I find motherhood to be really profound um, and really stressful, but not like in in a minute-to-minute way, just sort of existentially, which is sort of how we began this conversation. It's like, what is my responsibility here to like rear this human? Um, So I would watch things like my son trying on a police uniform that I bought for him along with eight other costumes and hoped maybe he would choose and favor others. Uh, or um, even being pregnant and trying to will myself to be a calmer person. I just thought childbirth and early childhood for my children, all of that was profound. And so I, I kept trying to sort of gain some clarity around certain moments or feelings by writing nonfiction. And I thought of this as kind of cheating on my real love, which was fiction. Uh, and I would publish these as one-offs, but I never thought of them as any kind of cohesive whole. Um, and then I had a friend who taught nonfiction and he taught a few of my essays and asked me to come speak to his class. And I quickly reread some of them before so I could remember what the hell I had written and realized they had something in common with one another. And they had that same thing in common with what I was working on now and what I plan to work on next. And I was like, okay. So um, wait, wait, let me, just for clarity, for the sake of clarity. Yeah. The essays that you were sort of going back through and rereading had something in common with the fiction that you were working on? 
No, oh. with the nonfiction that I was just sort of flirting with. But I was, I mean, those were the ones that were finishing first because I was in the throes of new motherhood. Oh, right. Um, and trying to find my way through certain experiences, like seeing my five-year-old um, have an anxious, what I thought of as an anxious episode through the lens of my own pediatric anxiety. Um, and I'm happy to report he's not as anxious as I was at his age. So this was a lot of projection uh, in that moment and also fear, you know, but I was writing my way through these. I, I mean, it wasn't like I'm going to write through this because I, I hear that, you know, the pa Paris Review is doing a series on whatever. I mean, I was writing this really to gain clarity for myself, um, which I think is what makes for a more authentic piece of work perhaps yeah right? well i mean I, I i've heard some variation of this story so many times that i'm at the point now where i just want to say to anybody listening who might be writing like whatever it is that you're writing on the side just for fun as a kind of joke like that's probably the thing <laughs> like not as a joke but right. you know what i'm saying like over and over again but some... you think of it as not your primary project it's not your primary project you're actually focused on this like you know novel that's told in 17 different voices and right. you know it's all g great and capital a american yeah yeah and you know and then on the side you're writing these little like vignettes about growing up in iowa or whatever it is and like it feels like over and over again people go and then i realized that like everybody actually liked these vignettes and they were making people cry and you know like it's like oh so like to drill down into that just a bit more i think it has something to do with the pressure that we put on ourselves to be really good on the page like i've certainly i've locked up i don't even know how many times you know just completely or just written just like terrible books, entire books. <laughs> um, because some part of me is just not free, I guess would be one way to think of it. Um, but when I'm at my best, it's like there's like a looseness, an unseriousness. Uh, professional concerns are really on the back burner. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I do. It's incredibly liberating to not even think that you're doing something with that's capitalized. It's like, I'm just off over here doing this other thing. Um, I think it is devoid of all that pressure for sure, because the aims are different. At least they were for me. Yeah, I think um, I, I didn't have a big intention for them. But I still, as a, you know, a serious writer, uh, and I put quote, air quotes around serious because I don't mean like humorless, uh, but as someone who cares a lot about sentences, which I still took them very seriously. Uh, I cared a lot about finding just the right way to describe whatever it was I was experiencing or seeing, or I cared a lot about working hard to gain insight into whatever I was thinking or seeing. Hmm. Yeah. It's like trying to think of how to engineer that mode, you know, Right. like how do you get yourself geared up in that way where you're caring? but you're not caring too much where you're being professional, but you're not really thinking about professional outcomes as much. Yeah, just tell everyone you quit writing. <laughs> yeah. And just have some fun somehow, you know, on the page. But I think too, like, it's not only like having like creative fun and having that sort of like childlike sense of play that we spend our whole lives trying to get back to or whatever. But you also said something that resonated when you said that it was like a genuine 
mode of inquiry. Like you were trying to, like you were earnestly trying to answer questions that were bothering you. Yes. And make yes. sense of like make heads or tails of stuff that you were living through right then. Um, yes. And I feel like that motivation and just like, and I felt this very much when I was reading your book was like, it's always that great sense of being inside somebody's mind um, in a really intimate way. Like that's a word that I haven't said yet in talking about your book that I probably should have is it's a very intimate book because it's about, you know, it's about your experience as a mother and your experiences as a teenager and like deep childhood memory and interactions with your kids and, you know, all this kind of day-to-day stuff that it all moves really fast. But I know from experience, like more than once a day, oftentimes you just have these little moments where you're like, oh, you know, and you're flooded with all of this Mm -hmm. emotion and sense of meaning and gravity. And it's also slippery, Um, but you manage to bottle it up or at least some of it. Thanks. I think it's a very different mode for me writing fiction. I, I don't think I approach them differently in terms of craft, but I think the impulse is different. I think, you know, I, I find it incredibly fun to play, you know, with imagination in fiction in ways that you obviously can't do in nonfiction. That to me is a space for playing more with craft. So, so you plan to keep writing fiction. Like you didn't come to some sort of like, like like pivotal understanding where you're like, actually I'm a memoirist and that's what I'm going to do. You're going to do both. No, I, yeah, I absolutely back to fiction. Yeah. I feel like too, like sometimes or often I feel like people will write a memoir or, you know, collection of personal memoirs and, uh, you spend that much time like looking inside of yourself and digging around in your own past. And it makes a lot of sense to me that like on the next book, you'd be like, yes, please get me back to fiction. I'm so sick of myself. <laughs> right. Oh my God. Yeah, I, I know that feeling. So I want to ask you, uh, before I let you go, just a little bit about getting to the finish line, since it was a long process for you, you know, getting from being an aspirant and at a young age to being published and having a book out mm-hmm on McSweeney's, mm-hmm. um, 18 years later, you said it took you, you know, that was the thing like that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. when you start to realize that you have, a you know, a bunch of essays that have like a thematic resonance with one another and you're like, Oh, I can maybe make this into a collection. Can you just talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how the book came to be from there. Sure. Uh, so I actually just wrote an essay about this tons of labor that writers do when their books are coming out. Um, and this was uh, a piece where I recommended um, books for Mother's Day for the Jewish Book Council. Uh, but initially, I had pitched it as much to myself as anyone else as a book that had a very different thematic center. And I think, to be fair to myself in the book, it has a lot of threads um, that bind it, yes. I hope. Um, but initially, I talked about it as... Uh, it was a book about lives I'll never live. This was my big hook. Uh, and indeed, there's an essay where I ghostwrite uh, a Syrian refugee's, you know, memoir. So inhabit his life. It's my mom's ex-life. Um, it is a friend who becomes a gestational surrogate. And I write a portrait of her and all these people making choices that I wouldn't make, but I'm sort of inhabiting their lives. So this to me seemed like a good hook or an accurate one it didn't 
fully cover all of the material, but I felt like it covered enough of them that you, you know, I can go with this umbrella metaphor. You'd only get a little wet, <laughs> but mostly. Right, you know. right. Uh, and then uh, I think it was my agent who pointed out or somebody pointed out that it wasn't wide enough. So I went back and thought about it. And then I decided it was a book about trespasses, which, again, a lot of different ways in which, you know, mistakes large and small are made, you know, whether it's, you know, Jewish genocide or, you know, my mother offending me. I don't know. There are a range of trespasses here. Uh, but it took when the editor at McSweeney's um, read it, and I think she had a couple of other editors there read it along with her, um, she loved the book, but made clear to me that I, I wrote something quite different. <laughs> She's like, actually, this is a book about inheritance, uh, or, this, or this is what we think it is, and would you be okay with our, with thinking about it in those terms? And of course, as soon as she said it, I was like, oh my gosh. Did you see my it's... facial expression when you said that? Like my eyes lit up. I was like, oh my God, I wish I would have, I wish I would have said that. <laughs> but I also think, uh, and this is what I just wrote about, um, that I had to like sit and think like, of course I know that's what it's about. And that I had my kids in mind the whole time. Nearly every essay is considered through a maternal lens even when I'm writing about a student who, you know, makes a pass at me, it's like, I come back to how do I raise a boy? Right. So he won't be that dude. Uh, and I think in my heart of hearts, even though I didn't admit it to myself until very recently, I was wary of having written a mom book. And I think I had, you know, concerns that I wouldn't be taken seriously or that the book wouldn't be taken seriously. And what did it mean to have read a written a book about motherhood for me and I'm ashamed that I, I was ashamed but I was I think I think I was trying to find some sort of quote-unquote higher like connective thread whatever that means is there anything higher than motherhood I mean parenthood to me is just like the upper echelon of profound experiences so uh so I own it and then I I recommended some great you know, deep and powerful books by, you know, Grace Paley and Sheila Hetty and Elisa Albert, who, you know, books that really, I think, um, are demonstrate what one can do with this subject. Yeah, I get it, though. I mean, I think like I get the impulse to not want to fall into some sort of category or be pigeonholed or, you know, but then I don't know. It's just it's so funny to me, too, because. We tell ourselves so we're not dumb. doing something. Yeah, we tell ourselves we're not doing something, and it's the exact thing we're doing. <laughs> exactly. It's the same as I'm not writing this book, but yes, you are. Yes, you are. You can't avoid yourself. You know, whatever it is that you're meant to do, I don't know if you have any way of avoiding it. And the whole process just seems like one long coming to terms. Totally. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was actually doing a live event, and the interviewer was like, did you have any you know, concerns about writing a, like a mom book. And I was like, yeah, like she just named it. And I was like, yes, that is, that is true. Well, you hear though, you hear these things, like I've heard these things before, you know, either in conversation on this show or read them in other like literary type interviews where uh, you like almost always female writers will be saying, 
you know, just didn't want to like the book with the cupcake on the cover or the book with the stroller on the cover, like wanting to sort of avoid that fate. And yet those are the things that I guess, you know, off the shelf, help a book to sell. I guess that would be the motivation for it. But I think a lot of women resist that Mm -hmm. sort of categorization or like forward facing market presentation. Yes, I am in that camp completely. Well, uh, and I and, should say, yeah. and I don't mean to interrupt. I'm looking at your book right here. Isn't I, that pretty? I, I don't see any cupcakes, like you know, no, or strollers, or strollers. It, it looks kind of like, like there's some sort of toxic spill, maybe. Yes, it does. <laughs> but you know, McSweeney's—they always make a very. That's one of the things I love about them. They always make a good-looking book, like. And as a student of of visual arts this you know really speaks to me you didn't do this you didn't do this artwork did you no no but it was a long collaboration to find the right fit for the book got it okay well i like it and uh i loved reading your book and meeting you i felt like i met you on the page but it's also nice to talk to you i hope it was uh wasn't too painful i i I, uh it was great it was great to meet you I hope that it's not 18 years before we hear from you again. Do you have another book in the works? Is there something you're is there something you're working on on the side that's eventually going to become your second book? <laughs> um, I hope so. I have to say that you know, a la pandemic parenting, you know, I also teach three classes and direct a reading series in a literary magazine, uh, and have two small children. And it's a fucking pandemic. So, and I'm promoting this book like crazy. So, it's not been a time of extreme productivity. Well, in creative it, life. Yeah, as a writer, it's extreme productivity <laughs> in other ways. Right. Um, but I'm back to fiction, and I'm not sure what shape the project will take. And I'm I'm deliberately not making decisions about that because I think, you know, I just want to see where it goes. Yes. I think that's a good mode to inhabit. It is indeed. And you've got that one story that won a big award. That's like your, that's your flagship or whatever, you know, that's like the centerpiece and you can just build around it. (laughs) That, that has been suggested to me. Okay. Well, I wish you luck and I thank you again for the time. Congratulations on spilt milk and best of luck with whatever comes next. Thank you so much. Okay, there you go. That is Courtney Zoffness, and her new collection of memoirs is called Spilt Milk. Out there now from McSweeney's, the official May pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Courtney Zoffness on the internet at CourtneyZoffness.com. She's on social media. She's on Instagram. She's got a Facebook page. Her Twitter handle is at C-Z-O-F-F-R-U-N. C-Zoffrun. At C-Zoffrun. She's also on Goodreads. Again, the book is called Spilt Milk, available from McSweeney's. Go get your copy. Read it. Do it. The Other People podcast is offered freely every single episode, the entire archive, available to you for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the show, support the show. If you can do that, just go to patreon.com slash otherpplpod, Patreon dot com slash other ppl pod you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month there are different levels different tiers of support you can get stuff you can get a t-shirt a mug a tote bag all that kind of stuff i'll wish you a happy birthday even you can get a book club membership 
patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you have something to say, if you want to reach out to me, the email address is letters at other PPL.com letters at other PPL.com. This program has its own official app. The other people with Brad Listy app. It's a good app. It's free. Go get the app. Next week on the program, I believe my guest will be Sam Talent. Still hammering it out, but I believe it will be Sam Talent. He's got a superb new novel out. It is called Running the Light. So stay tuned for that. I feel like things are getting slightly back to normal. Is that real? Am I feeling that? Is it uh is it happening? Why do I not trust it fully? I kind of trust it, but I don't fully trust it. I think I've been hurt before. It's scary to trust. I guess I should trust, though. Maybe. Maybe.